You can turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We'll be looking at Titus 2 verses 11 to 14, but we'll be reading the whole chapter. Uh, again, my name is JC and I'm a, a student at Puritan, but also uh, at uh, Grace Fellowship, OPC, uh, sister church in Zealand. So I bring you greetings from the saints at uh, Grace Fellowship, OPC, where I'm uh, serving this summer as a pastoral intern. Titus chapter 2. It's a joy to be with you all, worshiping God. You inside, outside, uh, you guys all online. Titus 2, we'll read the whole chapter. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. We're talking this evening about what, I, what I've entitled the sermon is Training Grace. Training Grace. Uh, we, we're more familiar with the uh, idea, the phrase of saving grace. We're familiar with saving grace. You know, we sing in the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But we don't think about training grace. Because you see, our text tells us tonight uh, that the grace that brings salvation to all people is a grace that is training us. You see, God doesn't just save us so we can kind of sit back and just enjoy life in his kingdom. Yes, he saves us from slavery to sin, but he's not just saved us from, but he's saved us to. He's saved us to a life of godliness, of good works, the sort of life that's described really in this whole letter. And uh, the, the whole book of Titus is really a letter that has a lot to do with how we live as Christians. This idea that we profess faith, but that faith, um, it compels us to live a certain way. And you see, the problem was that uh, for the people in Crete, uh, the island of Crete where uh, the church was that this was being written to, uh, there was these false teachers. 
And we don't know much about their teaching. They're called insubordinate deceivers. Uh, But we're told a bit about their false living, that they weren't living godly lives. And Paul actually attributes um, a saying that was kind of attributed to the culture around them, uh, where someone said that the people of Crete are largely uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And he says, this is actually kind of true of people in this culture. But the problem is that that was also true of people in the church. People in the church weren't living in a way different than the sinful culture. They were living the same sort of sinful lives. The thing is that they hadn't caught that idea that grace isn't just uh, to be saved to a comfortable life, but it's to be saved unto a life of godliness, a people who are zealous for good works. And these false teachers are then um, called detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And he, Paul says of the false teachers that in uh, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That is, their works are not corresponding to their profession of faith. And so he says, I want you to teach these things. I want you to tell the people in the church, Titus, how to live. How should the elders live? How should the young men, the old women, um, the young men, young women, everyone, there's a path of godliness that's been charted out for us. And so he says, and at the end, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Titus, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works, to be devoted to, to good works. And so in chapter 2, that chapter we read, he lays out a lot of these sort of practical instructions. He says, older men live this way, older women live this way, younger women, younger men, slaves, servants. And then our text today tells us why is he telling them to live this way? What is the, the because with these practical instructions? And I'll read it again. He says, basically, live a godly life Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So not only have we been saved from, we've been saved to. Uh, but here's the problem we run up against. The problem is that in, of, in and of ourselves, we are naturally averse to work. We're naturally disinclined to hard work, to this sort of training and intentionality and deliberateness that this intentionally godly life would call us to. It's much easier to sit back, to go with the flow. And so the question we ask ourselves then is like, why work hard at the Christian life? If we're, if we're saved, if we're secure, why pursue this zealous life of godliness? Why sacrifice in order to live for Christ? Why not just live sort of the same nice lives our neighbors do with uh, the Jesus assurance on the side? Why would we invest Well, those are the sorts of questions I think our text helps us answer tonight that we'll be looking at. And we're going to look at this text in two parts, the second longer than the first. But we're going to look at, first, the purpose of this training grace, 
We're talking about training grace. So the purpose of training grace, and then what's going to be the actual program of training grace. So the why and then the what. Training grace, the purpose and the program. Verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Take take a look at that in your Bible. Titus 2, verse 11, it says, The grace of God has appeared. That is, um, God's grace, his goodness, his love and mercy exercised in Christ towards sinners like us who don't deserve it. This grace, this gracious redemption, it's appeared. And it's appeared preeminently in the person and work of Jesus. But it also appears to us and to all in this world through the preaching of Jesus. Paul actually said this in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He said that um, God's grace has been made manifest, that is, it's appeared, in the preaching of the word. So grace, is it appears to us in preaching. And uh, it's appeared bringing salvation for all people. It's a grace that declares to us that there's a way to be rescued and delivered, that is saved, from the dominion and power and slavery to sin. We're rescued out of the kingdom of darkness. And this salvation, it comes to all people. Now that doesn't mean all people without exception. It means all people without distinction. Every person that's referenced in this letter, that means grace doesn't just come to Israel now, but it comes to Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, young and old. No person is outside the purview of the grace of God. Grace has come and it's declared salvation for us. And we enjoy the wonderful fruits of God's grace. But remember, this grace doesn't just save, it also trains Because we see right there in verse 12, this grace is training us. Uh, This word here used for training is uh, literally the word uh, disciplining. Disciplining. So why would we say training when the word is disciplining? Well, you know, if if you're a parent, disciplining your children is is part of the training regimen of raising godly children. And the word discipline is really intimately related to the idea of discipleship. And so it's, a, it's appropriately translated training us, or you could think discipling us, or even schooling us. God's grace wants to bring us into a kingdom, into, um, into the school of Christ, as it were. We're called to be disciples of Christ. That is, learners, students of Christ, the master teacher. Every student, when he's fully trained, will be like his master Christ tells us. And so when we're saved, we're enrolled in the school of Christ. But the question is, are we going to apply ourselves diligently to really engaging in what this schooling process, this training process will look like? Will we devote ourselves to learning our master's ways? That's the question for us. Because Christ, as it says in verse 14, he didn't just save the lost, but he wants to train the saved because he gave himself to redeem us, that is to save us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So not only does the grace that save also trains, we could also say that the Christ who redeems also renews. Christ didn't just buy us back, but he's also renewed in us um, to be a new people with a new obedience and a new mission to walk in his ways. 
And the question is whether we will apply ourselves in this school. Because sadly, far too often, we don't. We take a hands-off, lackadaisical approach. And it's almost like, um, if you think of, of an illustration sort of like this, if you are graduating high school thinking about college in the fall, um, let's just imagine, I'm sure this is no one here, but you have terrible grades, you have no money to pay for college, you, your hopes are dim, but somehow um, the president of, say, the most prestigious school you could think of decides to have grace on you, covers your full tuition, full ride to the school, welcomes you in, pays your way, and you're there. And you've been given an incredible opportunity, an opportunity to learn from the best, to actually grow personally such that you could make a real difference in this world. And let's imagine this is your son or daughter has gone off and they come back and you find out that they've basically flunked out. They got to the school but did nothing. Didn't attend class, didn't open their textbook, didn't ask for help. And you would say, how could you have squandered such an opportunity? You had a chance to learn from the best. And you can't complain that you didn't have the resources. There was classes, there was tutors, there was technical, there's, there's the library, there's resources available to you. That, that same grace that brought you into the school supplied you with everything you need to succeed. And sadly, that's often the way we end up in our Christian life. We're just glad to have made it into the church, and then we just want to relax and take it easy when there's such an incredible opportunity for us to learn the way of Jesus, to carry on his mission in this world, and to be transformed into his likeness as we follow after his ways. And this grace that has brought us here has graciously equipped us. Christ has given us his word to direct us, the greatest textbook, if you will, of all time. He's given us the Holy Spirit, the greatest personal tutor. He's given us the church as the greatest learning community. Second uh, Peter 1.3 tells us that We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. But we have to work. We have to put in this spirit-filled, faith-filled effort. That's what we're called to. We have this opportunity to, decide, to be apprentices to Jesus. And so the question is, why should we work hard at that? Why should we care to participate in that if we've already got our ticket in? I want to just point out three reasons that, um, three implications of one core truth here. And the core truth is that this life of good works and godliness is part of the purpose of God in your redemption. It's said in verse 14, Jesus redeemed us to purify us that... This is Christ's reason for redeeming and purifying us. That we might be a people that belong to him who are zealous for good works. Or if you think about how, how Ephesians chapter 2 puts it in verse 10, that he's, he's saved us that we might walk in these good works that he set out for us. He's not just saved us from, but he's saved us too. And so if this is the purpose of God in our salvation, if this is God's intention for his redeemed people, what that means is when we live according to that intention, when we walk out the purpose God has for us, one, that glorifies God. When we're living in the way God desires for us to live, the way he's redeemed us to live, that brings incredible honor to the Lord. It's like when, when that student works hard at that school, it brings honor to the name of the institution, to the person that brought him there. We have an opportunity to glorify God in fulfilling his purposes. Second, it's also 
This is the path to the most meaningful, purposeful life for each one of us. You see, when a, when a machine is being used according to the intention of the designer, that's when the machine most flourishes. You know, a, a saw is doing best when it's sawing, not when it's hammering. And the same thing for us. We, when we are functioning as Christ designed for us to, as he redeemed us to, to live this sort of life, wow, that is a meaningful life. That is a purpose-filled life. That's a compelling, beautiful, joy-filled life. But we, shy, we, we, we think that other life, the lifestyle of the world is more compelling. No, living for Christ is. Walking in his ways. And I think too often, we sort of just are content to drift below the potential that the Lord has for us. Um, I'm reminded, there's a scene in this movie, Ford vs. Ferrari, well, this doesn't spoil anything, so don't worry. But uh, there's, there's this auto mechanic at his shop, and uh, he's fixing up cars, and this rich guy who has this really nice, powerful car drives in, and he's complaining that his car keeps breaking down. And he's like, why does this car keep needing work? And uh, Christian Bale's character, his conclusion to him is he says, well, this is a powerful car that's made to be driven fast. And it's made to be driven hard. It, the power needs to be used. And he says, you're just babying this car. You're just taking it easy. And so because this car is not living up to it, the power within it, it's actually breaking down. And do you realize that as Christians, we've been given the Holy Spirit, the greatest transforming power in the whole world. And so I think we need to have higher expectations for ourselves. Can we run harder after Christ? Can we do more for the kingdom? Can we love more? Can we um, serve Christ with more fervency? Because that's where we're actually going to find the fulfillment. The harder we go after the things of the kingdom, that's where the meaning of life is. And often our lives are breaking down and we're lacking purpose just because we're kind of living lazily, not appreciating what a gift the Holy Spirit is and what a sort of life is behind us. And so we pursue this life, this school of training and grace, because it glorifies God, because it is most fulfilling for ourselves, and this is the fruitful life that is best for our neighbors. This life of good works is a life of love. Um, Martin Luther said that it's not God that needs our good works, it's our neighbors that do. And so when we're functioning according to God's plan, this is a life that's fruitful in blessing others in ministering in love and having an effect on the world around us. This is the purpose of training grace for God, for our own good, for the blessing of the world. It's worth enrolling in this school and working hard at it. It's worth putting in the faith-filled, spirit-filled effort. That's the purpose of training grace. But now let's look at the program of training grace. If we're going to commit, if we're going to go all in on this school, uh, what, what, are the, what are the classes we're enrolled in? Okay? What are the uh, subjects that we're going to be really digging into? Well, three I want to point out on, in this text. Um, and I'll read verse 12 to 13. Take a look there. That grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. The three courses, the course of renouncing, the course of living, and the course of waiting. We are, we're taught by the Spirit of grace to renounce, to live, and to wait. And uh, we, we might think of it this way, that if we're walking the narrow road of the Christian life, 
we're walking the path, and all the while, we're renouncing what's behind. We're renouncing the distractions to the side. We're living in the moment, keeping the course, waiting, looking to that end goal. Uh, Like that hymn says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Or as Hebrews 12, uh, 2 tells us that we're to run a race with endurance, the race of the Christian life, laying aside, renouncing the weights of sin that cling so closely, and looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So we live this life all the while renouncing sin, all the while waiting for the return of Christ when we'll be with him and made like him. Grace trains us to renounce, to live, and to wait. Or more simply, uh, maybe for, for, the, for the kids, if your parents will ask you what the points are, you could just think of this, that God's grace trains, is, trains us to say no, to say yes, and to say, oh yes. To say no to sin, to say yes to Christ, and oh yes to that day when we'll be with Christ in glory. That's what grace is training us to do. So let's look at these in turn. First, renouncing. We're called to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Renounce means to reject it, to utterly deny it. Two things we've got to put away, ungodliness and worldly passions. Uh, Ungodliness is not a catch-all term for all sorts of wickedness and sin. Ungodliness is, you can think of it as lack of godness. It's, It's a life lived without reference to God. It's a life devoid of God, a life where someone lives not caring what God thinks not considering God's judgment, not giving God thanks. This is the heart, really, of atheism. It's a life lived without any consideration or reference to the creator and redeemer. And too often, actually, we slip into this as Christians. Uh, The Puritans called this practical atheism, that when we find ourselves living without giving God um, consideration, we're kind of living like atheists. This is the ungodliness that we need to renounce. Just think, how often do, you know, you go through your work day and you can come home and think, did I even think about God today? Did God and this great gospel message affect any of my thoughts or decisions? We want to throw off that sort of ungodliness that doesn't thank God for his good gifts, the, the kind that doesn't factor God into every thought and decision. We've got to renounce this sort of godless living, which is really an utter focus on self. What I want to do, my desires, my preferences, purposes, and goals. We've got to say no to that. No to ungodliness, but also no to worldly passions. We renounce worldly passions, which could also be worldly desires, worldly lusts, worldly cravings. We've got to say no to worldly lust. Those, um, the, the kind described in 1 John 2.16, where he talks about the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. These are the sorts of worldly desires that we don't have to look far to notice. They're all around us. Lusts of the flesh, uh, those cravings for the pleasures of food and drink, immoderately indulged in, the, the pleasures of sexuality apart from God's purpose and design, the pleasures of leisure and ease, the lusts of the flesh. And we see it everywhere, along with the lusts of the eyes, that is, uh, the things the eyes set upon, lusts for material possessions, lusts for wealth, that sort of greed uh, for gain. And the pride of life, a desire for recognition, achievement, success, fame. These are worldly desires 
that we're to say no to. They're the desires. These are the things our culture pursues as the highest end. We're not to be about that. We're to be about pursuing the kingdom of God, living against the desires of this world. So th- think of our church back in Crete. The, the, the Cretans are liars. They're given to deception, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's the life to them, a life of ease and um, indulgence of the senses. And he says, Though you have to put away those. But there's also worldly desires in our context. What might we say are worldly desires we see in America, whether it's individualism and self-centeredness, greed and materialism, sexual promiscuity and perverseness, gluttony, substance abuse, and just incredible pride everywhere you look. And these worldly desires are not just out there. It's not just those people. We can see these in our own hearts. We see how, how often, it's like, um, you can think of like our heart almost like it has hands. Be like, almost like our hearts reach out to try to grab these things because they look good and we want them. Uh, the hands of our heart are constantly reaching, but we're to say no to those worldly desires. That's what the school of Christ trains us to, to say no. But secondly, it trains us to say yes. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly. And theologians and commentators have pointed out that these three terms here really function as a a comprehensive summary of the entire Christian life. And they do so by the way they refer to our three primary relational orientations. That, That is, our relationship to ourself, our relationship to others, and our relationship to God. So self-control governs how we relate to ourselves and our own desires. Uprightness, or it could be uh, justice or righteousness, refers to equitable relations man to man. And godliness refers to our disposition, our heart disposition towards God. We'll look at these again in turn. A self-control here is uh, literally the the idea of soberness or sober-mindedness. And so how does soberness relate to self-control? Well, think of it this way. When you're intoxicated, uh, your reasoning is impaired, and you go just follow headlong the desires of your flesh. But self-control is the disposition where your mind is, in a sense, in control of your desires, and your desires submit to the reasoning of your own mind. It's kind of like if we think of uh, race cars again, uh, that we, we have these powerful urges. We're a tangled mess of just desires and passions. And uh, this powerful engine, it, it could cause a lot of destruction to ourselves or to others. But when we're governed with this uh, sober-mindedness, a reasonableness, it's like taking the wheel such that, no, we, we direct our passions in the right path the path the Lord sets for us. And we bring all things in in subjection to the mind of Christ that we're called to have. As Romans 12, 2 says, that we're supposed to have a mind that's transformed and renewed uh, by the word of God, that we would know the will of God so that when, when our flesh wants to go astray, we steer it in the right direction. We can break when our flesh is running wild. And this is the essence of self-control. And uh, self-control... It actually pops up in this letter a bunch. Uh, It's the only character quality that is applied to every group referenced, uh, which is really interesting. It's applied to the elders, that the elders are called to be self-controlled in chapter 1. The older men in chapter 2 are called to be self-controlled. 
the older women are called to teach the younger women self-control. And what I think is most interesting of all is um, the actual, the only commandment given as a directive to young men is to be self-controlled. Interesting, isn't it? Um, doesn't it seem pretty clear to us that more often than not, the greatest quality young men need is self-control? Because the desires of the flesh are strong. The desires for sensual pleasures, the desires to just be lazy and to take it easy, these desires can drive young men into terrible places. And so there is great need to learn the grace of self-control. If you're a young man listening, you need to learn this. You need to master those desires of the flesh, those worldly lusts. Because like Genesis 4-7 says, it's like sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Its desire is to destroy you. It says you must rule over it. By dependence on the Spirit of God, by meditation on the Word of God, you can subdue your sinful flesh. Because if you're in Christ, Romans 6 is true, that you are not a slave of sin, but you're a slave of righteousness. Therefore, you don't have to obey sin. In Christ, every believer is enabled to obey. Able to obey and resist the passions of the flesh. We need to say yes to self-control. Secondly, we need to say yes to uprightness. And really, the heart of this call to live an upright, righteous life is really just a life following the golden rule. To do unto others as you would have them do unto you. To to treat others in the way you would like to be treated. That's, That's a just way to treat someone. Or if we flip that uh, upside down, just it's helpful to think of it this way. Um, don't treat others the way you don't like to be tra- treated. So just think of the different ways you feel mistreated. The, the way you feel mistreated by your managers at work, the ways you might feel mistreated by your spouse or by your parents or by your children. And think of the things they do that are doing that and then don't do those things. If you don't like being yelled at, don't yell. If you don't like it when people speak about you behind your back and spread rumors about you, don't participate in that with regard to other people. If you don't like it, if people uh, stop listening to you when you're talking to them and just start looking at their phone, don't do that. This is a simple life of uprightness. It's treating others the way we'd want to be treated, the way they deserve to be treated as image bearers of God. And this seriously affects our witness in this world. Yes, we want to see justice at the broadest scale possible, but you can start working towards justice in your own heart. Treat people well. Care for them. Love them. We should all be following after those qualifications for elders that says um, elders must be above reproach and have a good reputation with outsiders. The way you treat people outside the church should cause you to have a good reputation among them and one that honors God and witnesses well for his kingdom. We're called to live uprightly, but also godly. We're called to live godly lives, and grace trains us to be godly. And godliness here is the antidote to that ungodliness we talked about earlier. That lack of reference for God, um, godliness is the exact opposite of all of that. The godly person is the one who uh, walks in the fear of God, which is simply uh, factoring God into every thought, into every decision, to live in the reality of God. When God is really, really real to you, that affects how you live. Just like uh, the way you work 
often is affected when you know your boss is watching you. We ought to live our whole lives knowing that God is watching us at all times. And for us to care to please him, and for us to care to not displease him in all our actions, this is living with reference to God. Um, I was just thinking today about the sun. It's powerful, and it's hard to ignore. And uh, when we ignore it, when we live in the heat, like you, some of you as might have been doing recently, without reference to the sun, not considering its power, what do we end up with but terrible sunburns? We didn't give thought to the sun. And um, there might be some very diligent moms among you who are, who are very aware of the power of the sun. And so, you know, if, uh, if boys and girls, you're like going outside, your mom's like, no, no, stop, put on some sunscreen first, put on some sunscreen. It's because she's more aware living her life and the reality of what the sun can do than you are. And this is, it's a silly illustration, but this is um, how we ought to consider God, that we're leaving the house. Oh yeah, God, right, I need to consider the Lord. That's a godly life. That's the life we want. It's a life of where we're seeking communion with Jesus all day long. Wouldn't that be amazing to be like, imagine living a whole day where your thoughts of God are uninterrupted where you're enjoying the goodness of Jesus and just thanking him all the day. Wouldn't that be amazing? Don't you, isn't that your goal in the Christian life, to live your whole life with total, utter rev- reference to God in all things? That's what we want. And I just wish, you know, I wish that every Christian I could talk to, I could be guaranteed that that was their goal. Just like it is mine. To be like, yeah, aren't you working towards that? To live a life where you're, like, compelled by the vision of God in all things? Can we all be on the same page about that? That we just want to live a God-entranced life, a God-recognizing life, a God-serving life? Wow! Wouldn't that be amazing? But we never get there in this life. We know we fail so miserably. We fall short of our, even our own desires all the time. Why? Because we never fully get rid of that ungodliness. We never fully get rid of those worldly desires We're easily distractible. Our flesh easily takes over. We easily lose the thought of God. After all, we're living by faith still and not by sight. And that's why it brings us to this third point, that we live this life waiting. Waiting. Waiting for, as our text says, waiting in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because this is when we get the fruition. When Christ returns in his glory, that's when there's no more fighting the flesh. That's when there's no more having to live by faith. That's where there's no more injustice person to person. But Christ is all and in all. And in heaven, what will be the greatest joy but being in the presence of Jesus continuously and being made like him? As uh, 1 John says, that when we see him as he is, we will be like him. That's why we're in this school. That's what we're after. That's why we spend time renouncing the flesh. That's why we focus on living self-controlled, uprightly, and godly. It's that we might be more like Jesus and know his presence in our whole life. The presence of Jesus is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. That's what we're all about. Experiencing the presence of Jesus and being made more like Jesus. And that awaits us in heaven. That awaits us when he returns. But we get a chance to taste that now. We have an opportunity in this life to experience a taste of heaven on earth, to know the presence of Christ as we seek to obey him and walk in his ways, to be made like him, 
through the transforming work of his spirit, by the directing work of his word. We get to taste heaven on earth now. So the Christian life is a waiting life. And we wait steadfastly with this hope. This is where we say, oh yes. It's where we say, one day soon. Because we know that to persevere in anything hard, you need hope. If, if you have no hope that you're going to graduate college, you probably won't try. And we have a great steadfast hope. And the hope is that none of the works we have done for Christ in this life will have been in vain. Not one. Everything we've done in the name of Christ will be richly rewarded in the age to come. And when we're looking back on our lives at that final day, I guarantee you that you won't regret one thing that you did for Jesus. The only thought would be, if only I could have done more. If only I could have done more for this great Savior, who now I see. Now I see what it was all about. Now I see what it is to be like him, what it is to be with him. Oh, this is a great hope. Such a wonderful hope. And it's a hope that's come to us at a great cost. As verse 14 reminds us again that we await the appearing of Christ, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. We have this hope. We are in the school of grace because Christ gave himself for us. He gave himself to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery to sin. He gave himself to renew us by the sending of the Holy Spirit. He gave himself for our sins. He gave himself willingly. He gave himself in our place. He gave himself to pay our debts, to pay for our ungodliness, to pay for our unrighteousness and worldly desires. He gave himself for us, but he also lived for us. He lived that perfect righteous life that you and I know we can never live. He lived that perfectly self-controlled life. He lived the perfectly godly life in our place for us so that when we, by faith, unite ourselves to Christ, trusting in his work, we get his righteousness. We get his self-control. We get his godliness credited to our account. And so if you're maybe feeling, we're feeling discouraged, thinking, oh man, I fall so far short. I'm so unself-controlled. I don't treat people the way I want to. That's not cause for despair. Don't let your failings drive you to despair, but let them drive you to Christ. Because we're not in this school of training grace to try to merit forgiveness, to try to earn God's favor. Christ already has done it all for us. And so we pursue these things not to try to get a, get a foundation, but we do these because we have an opportunity to be more like Jesus. We have an opportunity to know and enjoy him more. Christ gave himself for us, and he still lives for us. This is where grace, the grace that Christ gave you when you trusted in him, there is still grace. He gives you the grace of his word to direct and guide you. He gives you the grace of the Holy Spirit to empower you for this new obedience. There's grace in his intercession that you can come to him for forgiveness of sins. And so, as I hope we all are, we see our weakness. Let your weakness drive you to Christ for forgiveness and into prayerful dependence on his power. Because it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live this sort of life, that we can succeed in being made more like Jesus. So we need to be a dependent people, saying, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need more of your grace. As we await that day when there's going to be no more struggle, where there's going to be no more wrestling and toil, but rest 
and joy in Christ. What a day to look forward to. To Christ be glory forever and ever. It's all of his grace. Grace has brought us safe this far. Grace will bring us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the incredible grace you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. Saving grace. Grace that rescues and redeems and restores and renews and regenerates. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who's given us new life and empowered us to live in this way. Lord, we do repent for all the ways we fail to love you and fail to live this life you've called us to. God, we repent for our laziness and apathy and ask that you will um, encourage us and help us to commit once again to fully living for you, to fully give ourselves for the work of Christ and his kingdom, to renouncing ungodliness and worldly desires, to help us to live self-controlled, uprightly, godly. And Lord, help us to await that day, the coming of Christ in glory, when we will be with him as he is and see the end of it all. Lord, bless this church. Bless your people with more grace, grace upon grace, that they would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all these things, knowing you hear us for him. Amen.